0: Okay, so welcome to the next episode of the Media Post-Pandemic Programming Podcast. There's a lot of P's involved in that. Uh, We're going to be talking about subscriptions in this episode. So the subscription economy has been one of the most profound business economic trends of the past decade, uh, particularly in the sectors that we cover, which is music, games, sports, and video. Subscriptions has been a driver of many of those businesses. Our question is, how much longer will this continue into the next decade, given the situations that we've had this year, the impacts of COVID-19 and the post-COVID recession that we expect will happen in is already happening? So some interesting things have been happening recently. In music, uh, we had an experiment with podcast increasing its subscriptions price in Australia. Seems to be the market that Spotify does its experiments in. And we've had rumors about Netflix increasing its prices as well. So we're going to be exploring all the issues around this sort of made, the, the, the principal business model in many ways, along with advertising, of course, in, in these uh, verticals. So I've got with me the two supremos I need on, on this particular episode. I've got uh, Mark Mulligan, who is our uh, guru of everything music uh, and much more, and Tim Mulligan, who is our supremo analyst in video, and again, much more. And apart from both those things, they're also brothers. So we're going to have a nice sort of um, family debate here, and we will get into a debate if we need to. But my, welcome, both of you.
1: Thank you.
2: Hi there, Kate.
0: So, Mark, I, I'll come to you first, and then, Tim, let's, let's come to you as well. My, my first question has probably got to be, Have we reached peak subscription already?
2: It really does, depending on how you look at it. We're in a market where we've got about 1.2 billion subscribers across music, games, video and news last year. It's probably going to hit somewhere towards 1.3, 1.4 billion this year. And there's been loads of growth during lockdown across all forms of subscriptions. I mean, news in particular was a really interesting one. Lots of news outlets reported really strong growth in subscriptions. And I think, you know, news is becoming more important to us now than it has been in a long period of time. But you look at music and video, you look at markets like, say, the US, Canada, Australia the UK, these are markets where we are reaching a saturation point in both music and video. And yet, most of the world is yet there to be tapped. You know, so we look at markets like India and China and Indonesia and Turkey, Middle East, you know, I could go on. There are so many very populous markets out there which have got nascent subscription markets at this stage. So I think the way we should look at it is maybe it's the end of the beginning you know, the big mature high ARPU markets are reaching a degree of high maturity and growth will be much harder to come by there. And then really, it's going to be the scale growth of the next few years as those emerging markets come online. But the final bit is there is a big difference between adding a subscriber in, subscriber in India than there is adding one in the US, because there's just so much lower a level of ARPU. So there will be a dislocation over the coming years between subscription revenue growth and subscriber growth
0: yeah quick follow-up on that with with arpus going down and the cost of acquisition i mean at what point do you think we get to look at a lifetime value of a subscriber and feel like that return has kind of you know hit a peak if you like
2: it's much easier to think sensibly about lifetime value when you have got a large segment of your user base essentially stable you know if you're in acquisition phase and you've got high churn and you know a lot of turnover and you're constantly bringing new people in then it's really difficult to look at what is a true measure of lifetime value so the benefit of markets like the us and the uk where you have got the markets getting towards peak penetration levels the tenure of the people who've been subscribed has been there for a long period of time. I think looking now at what the R is, is of a subscriber, looking at that over a 12-month period, that's going to give us a pretty good sense of what lifetime value is at with today's pricing. Mm-hmm.
0: Tim, video. I mean, I have already feel like we are maxed out in my household. We, we seem to have the lot. For me, it feels like diminishing returns on a lot of it. What, what's the situation with peak subscription in the video space?
1: So video is in a, an interesting situation because on the one hand, we've now entered streaming video subscription engagement as a mainstream activity in developed markets. It's over 50% weekly active use penetration. But on the other hand, it's still very much an emerging opportunity for the leading stakeholders in this space. So by that, I mean we have a combination of the traditional distributors of TV and film content alongside the tech majors, all looking to build direct consumer propositions in this space. And video is the digital iteration of TV and film, which have been the staples of popular culture for the last half a century. And what we're seeing is that transition to bring the analogue experiences of uh, film viewing, of pay TV, TV consumption into a, a streaming context. So we've got, on the one hand, we've got a digitally savvy Core base of subscribers who've been familiar with subscribing to the likes of Netflix, Amazon Prime, Hulu, etc., for a long period of time now. So, in the case of Netflix, Netflix made its pivot into streaming video on demand way back in 2007. So, there's been a long period of traction and growth here. But the likes of Peacock, uh, NBC, Universal's new SFOD, subscription video demand, and AVOD ad-supported video on demand service is uh, extending that engagement into a whole new area of users who traditionally have stayed behind the pay TV or the free-to-air broadcast paywall Mm -hmm. and user experience for uh, uh, free-to-air consumption. So we're, we're both at an established position and an entirely new growth area as well
0: right right i mean some of the huge players i'm thinking you know spotify i'm thinking netflix i mean disney's new into the space but you know same thing they're obliged to keep a pattern of growth right i mean the the, the world is watching their investors are watching how do you do that i mean mark you talked about pushing into into new markets but aside from that what would be their strategies to keep on the growth trajectory, given where we are with with subscriptions inevitably starting to reach that peak, even if we haven't got it yet, you know, the, the S curve has kicked in and and you know it's about to be a slowdown in growth. How do you keep driving the growth of your subscriber base?
2: Well, it's it's already a complicated question. It's made even more so by the the, the unique moment in time we find ourselves in. You know, we've just really sort of seen the the final first wave of the pandemic. We're now at the on the precipice of a second wave. There's a global recession which is beginning to happen. And so, you know, the pandemic and the recession into play. Subscriptions during the, you know, the lockdown era were resilient. I mean, they were more than resilient. They, you know, they continued to show growth. Some sectors saw accelerated growth. But as we go into the next six months or so throughout the remainder of 2020 and into 2021, more people are going to lose their jobs. So that means that there's going to be more pressure on spending. In media's uh, consumer surveys that we field, we we see that round about a quarter of music subscribers, round about a quarter of video subscribers said that they would cancel their subscription if they you know they found their economic circumstances changed. So that really is the it's this unique context which gets wrapped around it. if If we didn't have the pandemic and we didn't have a recession, we'd probably be talking now about so as we go into 2021, music services should be looking at adding on premium tiers working out ways to push price points mm. up by delivering extra value and all those sorts of things. Actually, we might just be in a a essentially a treading water phase where the next six to twelve months is about trying to keep hold of customers and trying to prevent them from churning, let alone thinking about increasing pricing.
0: Mm. Yeah. Tim, how about video?
1: Well, video in many ways has a greatest scope for being able to navigate this this situation we're in because Whilst the, the macro trends and the potential inhibitors of further growth and innovation, which uh, Mark's identified across subscriptions as a whole, for video, it's slightly different. And it's slightly different because there are not only significantly well-funded new players coming into the space, in some cases with a, an absolute full commitment to making the success of a digital Uh, transformation in the likes of Disney with Disney Plus um, and the rebrand of the hot style service in India. But also they're bringing on people into the streaming experience who haven't previously looked at streaming as anything other than an additive experience. So the growth to date of SFOD subscription video on demand has been led by a, a content arms race in original scripted drama. More recently, that's been expanded into factual as well. And there's some uh, increasing amounts of reality TV going in there. But fundamentally, the big budget investments for originals have been based around scripted drama. But of course, scripted drama is only one strand of the, the key USPs of the traditional pay TV offering. And what we're seeing now is a recognition that other areas that were previously beyond the remit of streaming are now coming into that ecosystem. So the key one here, there's two key ones, but the one that shows the most openness to moving into this space would be sports, because sports has gone through its own disruption that was unimaginable even eight months ago. But COVID-19 has reinforced a significant reassessment of what the future looks like, what a digital future looks like for premium sports, and that's expanded the conversations around how they engage with streaming services. And I mentioned Peacock earlier on. Peacock's actual major launch beyond its pay TV partners was to due to coincide with its exclusive U.S. rights to the. Uh, 2020 Tokyo Olympics in July. Obviously, that's now been postponed until 2021. So that experiment with a mass engagement around a digital sports offering has been postponed for now. But it's an indication of where things are going there. And the other area as well that really allows for significant growth in this space is news, the incorporation of news. In fact, we at Media Research, we're Getting ready to publish a report on the role of news in driving additional growth in direct consumer video propositions, and right. news really has had an unprecedented period of time in 2020. It's come back to the fore for a number of reasons. Obviously, the pandemic, really important issues that are being uh, resolved in a number of leading markets around the world, and the need to have that daily touch point that was somehow disconnected from the streaming experience but is now returning to the fore. Mm. All these areas allow for video to effectively get beyond those macro restrictions that would otherwise apply to subscriptions as a whole.
0: Okay, so there's a mix in what you've said, Tim, because I, I think on the one hand with with sports, Are you saying that that increases the amount of content available in, so for example, an SPOD subscription, so within your 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 Netflix or your um, Amazon subscription, Uh, and then news you talked about, I think driving subscriptions for news brands. So I just want to get into this a little bit more because you know, as you said, Mark, it's offering more to um, your existing customer base to keep them happy. There doesn't seem to be a lot of scope for either increasing the price as a subscription service. So, you know, hence Spotify's experiment and the the rumors on Netflix price increase. So I want to talk about the scope for increased prices. But just before we do that, would people actually want any more subscriptions? So as as part of the sort of peak of the subscription economy in the Western world, so the, the developed subscription markets, how many more subscriptions can we take?
2: Yeah. Well, first of all, the answer is that we're already taking a lot of them. You know, I mentioned earlier on about that, round about 1.3 billion subscriptions. Lots of those are the same people with multiple subscriptions. You've got round about a fifth of consumers have uh, three or more digital subscriptions. I mean, right now, that typically means a music one and a couple of video ones. Um, But among video subscribers, about half of them have um, two or more video subscriptions. So whenever we talk about how a market's going to evolve, you start off with those, you know, the the more tech savvy, more adventurous, early adopters and the early followers. That's pretty much what has driven the market today. People who've got a lot of appetite for taking a lot of subscriptions. As we go more mainstream and we get older, more tech conservative consumers coming on board and emerging markets and all those sorts of things, tolerance for multiple subscriptions will be lower. Uh, and I think this really matters for music because music uh, is not like video. Video, there's a really good reason for having Netflix and Hulu and for Amazon, because you want to get the shows those services have. Music, you've got the same music anywhere. And, you know, even Spotify with its exclusive podcasts, you don't need to pay to get those podcasts. So at the moment, there's no there's no set of velvet handcuffs that a music subscription service can slap on its um, on its customers. And as we're in this Pandemic era, as we're moving into a recession, if people do become increasingly cost conscious, then they'll start looking at value for money and you look at Apple One with its multiple uh, subscription product it launched recently, you add into that Amazon Prime, which has been established for a long period of time, uh, and a couple of other significant bundles in market, they may well be the ones which are most resilient to the impact of a recession and that could be to your question, Keith, that could be the back door in to getting people to have more subscriptions. One price point, but multiple subscriptions within it. And that is really, I think, when we think about like a gateway drug into getting people to spend more time with digital entertainment and carry on that transition away from all of those legacy traditional formats.
0: Yeah, I mean, at the moment, Tim, there's no way of sort of, of recreating that in the video space, is there? Because they've all got original content libraries and you kind of make a choice, you make a trade-off one between the other. So, I mean, where does Apple impact on, in that space? And do you see any kind of role for aggregation in, in the space generally?
1: So I'll answer the second part of that question first. Uh, regarding aggregation, there's been a crying out demand for aggregation for the last four years of this transition to subscription video on demand, it remains the big unresolved piece of the puzzle because what subscription video on demand is doing is it's adding a streaming overlay to a traditional model of paying for access and restricted access to premium content. But that format and the pay TV had an overlay of curation, and it had an overlay of scheduling as well, which allowed consumers to be able to make sense of the content which they were presented with, and they knew that they didn't have to worry so much about the quality of what they were committing themselves to because a team of professionals had effectively done it for them. That's no longer the case in the on-demand environment, especially when you're dealing with multiple subscriptions. So in Q3 uh, in the US, according to media research consumer survey data, 31% of consumers have one or more s subscriptions. So you think about what that actually means. It means that there's the additional headache of multiple billing relationships, but also the user journey understanding how to surface that content in an on-demand environment, it's much harder to be made aware of relevant, interesting content beyond algorithms, which can skew, especially when it's a recently launched service and there isn't a sufficient depth of consumer engagement data to meaningfully understand. So aggregation would be the way to resolve this. But as we're going towards this um, bundled offering, aggregation is going to come with silos. So if we look at the Apple One experience versus the Amazon Prime experience, we've got competing ecosystems, competing uh, portfolios of content, and competing strategic drivers for what they want to achieve with those bundles. So the overall aggregation experience will still be, Subordinate to the needs of the platforms which are powering those bundles. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it
0: feels to me to be just another form of siloing because the aggregation we really want is to obviously be able to navigate, as you, as you say, be able to navigate the content and have the recommendations and the discovery experience across the services that that you subscribe to. That's that's even in it, you know taking into account the fact that you've got more than one subscription.
2: Keith, okay, well, just being, Keith, just before yeah. we move on from this, I think there, there is a, a, another strand to this, which is we're not actually talking about aggregation. We're talking about re-aggregation. This all used to be aggregated before the digital subscription market happened and everything became siloed. So, you know, when we take the long view, yes, absolutely, This this phase of aggregation we're talking about now is very siloed. That's just a natural step. You know, ultimately, I think, Any entertainment and consumer-facing company has to respond to audience demand. It has to follow audience needs. I can try to control those to some degree, but if it fights user demand, it will ultimately lose market share. So over a period of time, I would expect us to see increasingly permeable walls between these silos and ecosystems, where there will be aggregation experiences, apps, whatever it might be that enables us to get all of our things together. And a good example is right now. If you look at Apple TV, the not Apple TV Plus, but the Apple TV app, it will pull together all of your different video experiences into one place. You know, you can see your Catch Up and your S-fod. If you look on Amazon Channels, that's another really good example. So, I think we're just getting started on this big re-aggregation process that might have a decade to play out.
0: Yeah, I mean, it'd be interesting to see something similar in music as well. So. Back on music, something I've been curious about for a while, and I noted um, that Will Page wrote this up in in Billboard just this week. Is is the switching behavior? So there hasn't been too much switching behavior for a variety of reasons. I mean, to, to a large extent, it's it's an amazing experience for the for the value the, for the price you pay. So why would you switch if you've decided on any one of the uh, the current streaming services? But there's a lack of differentiation as well, which has probably got something to do with it. But as they as those individual businesses want to grow and compete post you know, post pandemic, and that's what we're talking about, in a in a environment where the overall total addressable market has shrunk that a little bit because of recession. Do you think we'll see um alongside the the maybe re aggregation side of things, more attempt to drive consumers to switch from one service to another and how might that happen mark do you want to go with music first and then we'll come sure, on sure yeah
2: this? absolutely so first of all it's a natural natural stage of a mature market i mean if you want to look at what the music subscription market might look like in two years time just look at your mobile phone market you know the fierce competition uh, that happens between any mobile operator trying to you know to, to win your business but before we get there. I think, and it's one of the things you mentioned in that article by Will Page. You know, One of the things he pulls out there is this sort of the the sprint to the finish. Does the sprint to the finish just mean we carry on as we are or do different things happen? And I think it is a case that different things will happen. So before we get to that switching, you need to have clearer differentiation between the services. You know, there needs to be a reason to switch. They can't compete on price. They can't compete on catalog. So there's got to be some really good reason why you'd switch. And I think, you know, we think about, the latter stages of a saturated music subscription market, it doesn't necessarily mean that everybody's going to maintain market share for those last, you know, 10% of the market to be had. You've got, for example, YouTube music has been one of the real success stories of the last two years. Think about the average Gen Zer, you know, sort of 18, 19 years old, been using Spotify free since the playground, and uh, you know, have thus thus far shown no inclination to spend. However much Spotify might keep trying to get them to, yet they will spend most of their entertainment day on YouTube, of which music forms a really big bit of it. So actually, YouTube has got way more opportunities to push marketing messages to those young Gen Z users, and it can make the YouTube music experience feel like a really natural extension of their YouTube behavior, something that's really different from why they use Spotify. Uh, And they use Spotify and YouTube side by side. There's a really good reason that they use both of them differently. Similarly, at the other end of the spectrum, you've got Amazon essentially expanding the total addressable market by getting older households that had fallen out of love with music getting back into music through having uh, an echo in the kitchen, etc. And, you know, listening to music when they're cooking or whatever it might be. So that, for me, is an example of the opposite ends of the age spectrum where you have two services trying to be different things to very specific segments. Mm. More of that needs to happen. Once that happens, then you can start thinking about how everybody starts trying to win customers off each other.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Tim, I'm going to actually come to a different question for you because we're, we're running out of time. Given what we've just been talking about the competitive uh, nature of the environment, as it gets more mature, there's still plenty of scope for new players coming in. I mean, Tim, you already mentioned Peacock. I mean, even, Disney is is a relatively recent entrant into the, into the space. There seem to be more video launches, you know, each quarter. So people are still pouring into the space. How do you break into the market uh, when there's already a kind of uh, a consideration set of dominant subscription based businesses? Should new entrants be basically mulling over? alternative business models
1: so if the new entrants, the hypothetical new entrant doesn't have its own ecosystem or a robust premium library of content to deploy immediately and isn't thinking about introducing innovative engagement propositions then they shouldn't contemplate a moving to the space however if they do there is still absolutely an opportunity to be able to uh, grow the proposition And it could be something as simple as understanding who you partner with. So, one of the undoubted key drivers of the video landscape now is the big players who are consolidating their position. But as Mark mentioned earlier, big players have access points where smaller entrants can leverage those big footprints and those ecosystems to be able to grow meaningful. Strong, robust businesses so examples of this would be using Amazon channels uh, using the uh, Apple TV app ecosystem to be able using Android TV uh, a number of other different uh, formats within big uh, tech major platforms to be able to grow what traditionally happened in pay TV for networks so pay TV networks would partner with ptv operators to be able to reach audiences without having to go through the the challenges of creating their own direct consumer experience so that can happen if we think of new dtc propositions as digital networks and rather than being a hybrid of operators networks that's one way the other key point though is If you have a strong, robust library of content, that allows you to backfill around originals because the painful reality of originals is they are very expensive to produce. Even moving beyond that, and so I mentioned earlier on the opportunities around sports and around news, it still costs a significant initial outlay to be able to grow to be able to grow audiences and to grow awareness and just the time involved in commissioning content, especially now when we have real constraints upon production because of COVID. The reality is an original strategy by itself is not sufficient to be able to grow uh, engagement and retention. So having a robust library of content helps to mitigate that and the other piece, which we, we haven't touched upon in this podcast, but is absolutely pertinent to differentiation and retaining audiences as well as growing audience and market share, is fandom. So creating content that consumers will actively seek out as opposed to being passively fed, because that's the key differentiator in the streaming landscape. You have to go to market with content that demands the attention of the, the relevant Uh, consumers you can't have lean back content that appeals to all demographics because it doesn't stand out becomes commodified so having an understanding of the fandom ROI what works and how it works really helps to differentiate and we did a media research we did a a report last month looking at a show called Killing Eve which is a cross-genre uh, cross show covering a number of different verticals that would have struggled to have gained traction in the linear world, but does surprisingly well from a fandom perspective. And that's an example of what can work if you can get the awareness out there. Because one of the challenges of Killing Eve is it over-index for fans who consume the show but it under for awareness in the whole. So, filling in that equation helps to increase the ROI. And killing e fans are digitally savvy, they're three times as likely to have multiple digital subscriptions. And they're under indexed for things like cord cutting. So, understanding what your proposition is, creating smart content, or weaponizing existing content to be able to leverage fandom to differentiate either directly with your own proposition. On your own platform or going into partnership with de facto aggregators and their platforms is a way to be able to uh, maintain momentum in this streaming environment mm.
0: okay um mark if i come back to you on just the back on music the live streaming has been a space that we've talked about a lot and it's it's kind of emerged to you know it's sort of Phoenix from the flames almost uh, in this pandemic and created an entirely new sector. Are subscriptions going to a- apply there? Because they've tried live subscriptions in the past. Doesn't really make a lot of sense. But do you think live
2: streaming changes that? There's a number of different ways live streaming could work. But whatever happens, it needs to become more professionalized, more structured, a much clearer um, understanding of what the value proposition and the format are. Uh, so there are many things that need to happen in live streaming to get it ready, essentially for you know, for prime time. In a lot of ways, lockdown came too early for, uh, for live streaming. It just wasn't as developed a sector as, for example, video conferencing was, which, you know, really catalyzed as a result of, of lockdown. I think once we have an established structure about what the product proposition is, then we can start thinking in a bit more clearer sense about what the what the pricing should be. At the moment, too much of it is free. So we need smart things like geofencing, uh, multiple-tiered ticketing, virtual merchandise, virtual meets and greets, essentially just the things that already happen in the real world of live, translating them to digital equivalents. If we ended up in a stage where we had, for example, a global uh, or very least international circuit of virtual venues, with fixed capacities and you know fixed number of um, of slots per week etc to create a real sense of there being a a a concrete circuit with scarcity built into it then there's no reason why you couldn't build a subscription model around that where you know you you might subscribe to a certain genre you know you might really be into your alternative rock and you just subscribe to alternative rock and every time an alternative rock band plays on the circuit wherever that might be you can catch a gig you know live stream from Mexico City or one from Middlesbrough you know it's, it's the idea of being able to guarantee that you get access to all of these gigs the type of music you like there's no reason at all we can't try these things I would just say as a closing point we are at a stage where we need to professionalize, but we also need to experiment. So I think it would be wrong to say subscriptions can or cannot work at this stage because the market is simply so nascent. Now's the time to start trying out.
0: Yeah. Okay. For the rest of the day, I'm going to be thinking about the choice between Mexico City or Middlesbrough. (laughs) Okay, guys, thank you very much for breaking down what I I feel like is emerging complexity in the subscription space. So thank you for being my guests tim and mark uh what i would say is if you have enjoyed this program you want to know more contact us at media the other episodes of uh, the post-pandemic series will cover um the counterpoint business to to subscriptions advertising we'll also be looking at sports and gaming and the culture of consumption so uh, we'll see you again and thanks a lot
2: Thanks for listening. Be sure to keep up with all the latest episodes by subscribing to Media Research on your favourite podcast platform.